Big Sky, Big Potential. I'm Mike Rigby and this is episode 52 of Eastern Promise. This is the podcast that explores the full potential of the East of England. This week, we look at the organisation that's a catalyst for Cambridge's success and for quality of life across the city region. That organisation is Cambridge Ahead, and I'm talking to Chief Executive Jane Patterson-Todd and Head of Policy and Programmes Dan Thorpe about the roots of Cambridge Ahead and the power of its research, aiding advocacy on behalf of its members and the city itself. Although theirs is a model that is particularly suited to Cambridge, there's something for the whole region to take from Cambridge Ahead. And finally, from fish and chips to Singaporean chilli crabs, the whole world of street food is on this week's Crowd Sorcery. But first, let's catch up with everything that's new and improved in the east of England. Hydrogen East has given us all a sneak peek at the events it'll be holding for the UK's very first official Hydrogen Week. From the 13th to the 19th of February, Hydrogen Week will celebrate and promote the role of hydrogen in reaching net zero. Hydrogen East recently came on board as an official partner to Hydrogen Week, aiming to share insights for its vision for a clean hydrogen cluster in the east of England. Over the course of Hydrogen Week, Hydrogen East will be hosting two free-to-attend webinars, one to start the week and the other to close it. The first will be held on Monday the 13th of February and will explore hydrogen from unlimited water resources, bringing together the hydrogen and the water sectors, featuring guest speakers from Water Resources East and Hydrogenus. The second, taking place on Friday the 17th of February, will connect hydrogen and the transport sectors, exploring the race to hydrogen in transport decarbonisation and will include a guest speaker from Transport East. For more information, go to netzeroeast.uk and scroll down to Hydrogen East. From powering the future to preserving the past now, as the Borough Council of Kingsland and West Norfolk are looking for an architect-led, multidisciplinary design team for the project to redevelop the St George's Guildhall site in Kingsland as part of the Town Funds programme. The appointed team will be required to build on the existing Reba Stage 1 work to take the St George's Guildhall project from Reba Stage 2, concept design, all the way through to Reba Stage 7, use providing reports and ensuring client approval at every stage. This is an incredibly prestigious project, working on a hugely important part of Norfolk's history. For more information, go to west-norfolk.gov.uk, scroll down to Business and Property, 
under more services, then scroll down to doing business with us and follow the links from there. Now, it might seem a bit on the nose to cover this news report in the week I'm interviewing Cambridge ahead, but Cambridge is, quite literally, ahead. With a massive success in the December 2022 report into the next generation of tech ecosystems by Watcher of Startups, Growth Companies and Tech Ecosystems Deal Room. The original and best Cambridge ranks behind only the San Francisco Bay Area and Boston in Massachusetts and ahead of San Diego and Oxford, who round out the top five. Charlottesville in Virginia, Eindhoven, Munich, Zurich and Santa Barbara in California complete the top ten, whilst London ranked 24th. Now, not only did Cambridge pip traditional rivals Oxford and London to the coveted top European science hub spot, the city's place in the top three ranking will signal the opportunity, potential and the power of Cambridge and the east of England as a global science hub. We must not rest on our laurels, though, and both the Cambridge Norwich Tech Corridor and the Oxcam Arc have a huge part to play in strengthening our region's science credentials, and both the benefits and the opportunities are huge. Finally, the lovely people at Take Our Hand will be hosting the inaugural Bluebell Ball at the top of the terrace, Norwich City Football Club, Carrow Road, on Friday the 3rd of March 2023, and they would love for you to join them. So, buy a ticket, grab your glitziest outfit, and come and enjoy an evening of good company, fabulous food, and live entertainment, all whilst raising money to help the charity support young people navigate through their journey of grief. On the night, Grant Holt will be joining us to share his reflections of experiencing grief as a young adult and the important role football played in his journey. Singer-songwriter Ben Lawrence will be providing live entertainment with his band, playing music from debut album Oh Wide World, which he's been working on since sadly losing his twin brother at the age of 25. The charity are very excited to have the support of Richard Pierce, who many listeners will know, and Chris Reeve, who many listeners will also know, who will both be hosting the evening alongside the Take Our Hand team. All tickets include a welcome drink, a three-course dinner and entertainment with an option to add a goodie bag. And you're going to want to add the goodie bag. Business sponsorship packages are also available. If you're interested in this option, please email them at fundraising at takeourhand.org.uk for further information prior to purchasing tickets. If you'd like to learn more about the work the charity does, please visit www.takeourhand.org.uk. Take Our Hand is a fabulous cause, and I hope as many listeners as possible can attend the Bluebell Ball. And that's it. Send your news releases to newsdesk at easternpromise.site. Whether they're built around professions, places, professions in places, or whole sectors, there's nothing particularly groundbreaking about membership organisations. 
Wherever you are, whatever you do, there's bound to be a membership group looking for someone like you. However, Cambridge Ahead is different. Not just because it's focused on the city where the power of academia, science and research has few equals. And one of those even has the same name, Cambridge in Massachusetts. Nor is it entirely because of the breadth and quality of its membership, although that is a factor. No, it's because the quality of the research undertaken by Cambridge Ahead is so high, it's regularly cited in Parliament, for example. And as a former MP's researcher, I can tell you that's not as easy as I just made it sound. The ability to underpin your advocacy for your place, its people and your members with strong authoritative research and data is vital. You can't rely on others to make your point for you. Keen to know more about Cambridge Ahead, I sat down with Chief Executive Jane Patterson-Todd and Head of Policy and Programmes, Dan Thorpe. It's an absolute pleasure, and I've been looking forward to this for ages, um, to come to uh, back to Cambridge to meet with Cambridge Ahead. I'm here with CEO of Cambridge Ahead, Jane Patterson-Todd. Jane, thank you ever so much for joining Eastern Promise today. Oh, it's a pleasure. And Dan Thorpe, uh, what's your actual title? It's, I don't want to get policy research in the wrong order, which is... Hi, Mike. I'm Director of Policy and Programmes. Policy and Programmes. Right. Well, I suppose, Jane, we'd better start with you. And what is Cambridge Ahead for those, for those outside of Cambridge City who don't actually know? Um, we're a membership organisation for large-scale uh, businesses and other f- forms of organisations in the Cambridge region, which we define by 20-mile radius, who have a vested interest in the long-term economics of the region. Eastern Promise takes the east of England as a whole, but recognises that, unlike Yorkshire, where there's kind of a, an overarching identity, we respect, you know, I try and make sure we res- Eastern Promise respects every part of it. Cambridge has its own identity, Cambridgeshire, Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex. And what the, the the issue I found when I first tried to plan this interview was I felt I was really coming at this with a Norfolk mindset and asking Norfolk questions, if you like. And Dan, if I just start start with you and then I come come to Jane. What does a Cambridge mindset look like? Or, or you know, what's the Cambridge outlook? So something I think that's really special about this city region is that there, there is a a Cambridge way of looking at things, I think, uh, involves a high value on innovation, creativity, pioneering. You know, Cambridge is known as a city that experiments, and that does prevail uh, throughout the mindset of people in Cambridge. I think that's a real strength. Um, one of the things that we hear a lot from our membership and engage with other stakeholders in the city is uh a real desire from people who have come to call Cambridge their home, have been successful in whatever their career is in Cambridge, wanting to give back to the city and wanting to help others to feature from that success. So it's a very networked place. Lots of people are interacting with each other. And that's partly based upon how much people want to help others to be successful. There's quite a um, a close-knit feel to a what is now today a really big, vibrant city. And that's a particularly special characteristic. Jane, what would you what would your reaction to that be? 
Well, I think actually having come from London and uh, worked in a huge metropolis like this, I think the first thing that struck me about Cambridge was actually how small it is. And small, in, and I mean in a very good way. Um, as a city, uh, I think it's a, a city that looks a little bit like a village and behaves like a village. Everyone knows everyone. And that's a good point because people do business because you can walk down the street and Station Road, for instance, and it's very unusual that you don't bump into somebody you know. And before you know it, a transaction has taken place before you get on the train. And, you know, we've had conversations with people in larger cities and you know I was talking to somebody in Manchester about this and actually this person sort of scratched his head and said I, I can't remember the last time I actually spoke to somebody when I got to Manchester Piccadilly in the way that you're describing and I think that's really the standout point about Cambridge it knows how to do business it's got a massive energy about it it does as Dan says it cares about each other but most importantly it networks really well and it has its relationships and it cares very deeply about its relationships and introductions I think it's it's about being generous about how it introduces itself to others. Um, it's constantly looking down the lens of how do we engage with other cities? How do we understand other cities? And how do we understand what they're doing and what we can learn from it? And I think that's very endearing about the city. I mean, that's that's an incredible thing to hear about learning from other cities because, I mean, I, I, I'm going to jump around a bit now. I was looking at some Savile's research saying that uh, on current trajectory, Cambridge was looking to, if it hasn't already, overtake London in terms of uh, its productivity, uh, certainly by 2030. It's looking at about a 6% gap with Cambridge in the lead. Now, it's very, you know, I think very, very, a very positive development that Cambridge is thinking, what can we learn? I mean, I think from the perspective of the rest of the region, I think Cambridge has this 360 view it can take, whereas Norfolk and Suffolk and, and Essex to an extent... Uh, a kind of obviously the sea <laughs> puts a bit of a kibosh on that, but um, uh, I mean, Dan, what do you would, would you would you just reflect briefly on what Jane said, perhaps, and just what that three hundred and sixty view that Cambridge gets? What does that advantage does that give? Yeah, well, I, I think it's your analysis is absolutely right. Cambridge sits in the in the nexus of a range of different places, corridors, directions that all interact with what's going on in the Cambridge city region. So we uh, are clearly well connected down towards London. There is a big growth of the life sciences sector and cluster to Stevenage and then onwards to London, um, up towards Norwich and the agritech kind of collaborations that are happening in that direction. Eastwards uh, towards Bury St Edmunds, Ipswich and the port of Felixstowe. Then of course west towards Oxford. So Cambridge does genuinely sit in the middle of all of those compass points and does look to all of them to varying degrees and that is a an advantage to the city and it's an advantage to those places because Cambridge then plays an important role to the wider region because those places feel it is significant to build connections to Cambridge because it is to them. To leap back to Dan again, there are lots of membership organisations out there uh, looking at the region but I think what to me and, and as a former researcher, I suppose it's kind of um, my, my sort of field. It's the quality of the research that you, you put out. It's the focus it's a, of a lot of what you do to me as an outsider. And you've built a lot of credibility as an organisation around the quality of that research. I mean, in Cambridge, obviously, you do need to do quality research because you won't there be many places to hide. But how have you sort of achieved, gone about achieving that? And, 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 and what has has made research uh, that kind of the cornerstone of, of Cambridge Head's offer? 
So being evidence-led was really one of the sort of founding principles of Cambridge Ahead and then nine years down the line it's still a core principle of the organisation that what we do is led by evidence and led by highly credible, impactful research and there are a range of different organisations that we work with in order to make sure that that's the case. We work a lot with the University of Cambridge, um, they produce on our behalf a regular uh, data set on what's going on in the local economy. This is data that would not otherwise exist. It paints quite a different uh, picture to official statistics often. It's data that applies across a wider region than just the city, so across Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, um, which is really important. And over the years that that data has been produced has enabled us as an organisation to talk with authority about what's going on in the local economy and really adds weight to those discussions then with policymakers. That's an example of a cornerstone of commissioning new data and evidence to inform the discussions we want to have about placemaking in this area. But the evidence-led thing prevails across our work and there's many examples of pieces of research that we've done to make sure that we are also hearing from local communities and other local stakeholders as part of the evidence we're building to understand what's going on in the city, what the issues are. So for example, we've worked with RAND Europe, research organisation based in Cambridge, to understand from a community level what is going on in terms of quality of life in the city. So bringing those things and many others together, the, the programme of work is very much generated by high quality data, highly credible research, and then the way that's presented to those that are in power making decisions on policy. Jane, could you just um, talk me through um, the Cambridge Head member cohort because you can't fail to be impressed um, I think if you look down the list of members about the names you have on there but just talk me through sort of your your, your, your list of members and and um, uh, the way you kind of engage with them and, and keep them on keep them on board keep them happy and, and build that cohort well firstly um, we we like to see ourselves not particularly I mean this is going to sound elitist and not meant at all we are a bit like a club and what I wanted to do when we started Cambridge Ahead was make sure that actually we had a very strong relationship with our members. And that means one-on-one -on -one interaction and development and knowing and understanding each and every member's needs and wants for the future of Cambridge is really important to us. So by doing that means that I need to and the team need to build a relationship that actually means that we, we actually do get to know them each, each and every one of them we know really well. Um, all the members that we work with and the importance of it is that if you do look down the masthead, it has to have some sort of credibility because, as Dan was alluding to, a lot of the work that we do does go towards government circles. And they will look down the masthead of an organisation which says it's a membership on businesses and it will see what its influence looks like. And so when we were canvassing for organisations and we continue to canvass for them, they have to be of a credible scale and they have to be, have a long-term interest in Cambridge. And for us, what is important is what are they offering Cambridge and what in return by working with us can we offer them by actually advancing this economy forward. Uh, so those are the sort of criteria that we look at when we um, when when potential members come to us um, and are interested in joining and likewise when we go out and effectively cold call members as well. We balance that across sectors 
Uh, so it's got to be representative of the types of organisations that um, reside in Cambridge and the sectors that reside in Cambridge. Um, so uh, technology, life sciences through to property, uh, consultancies, professional services. Um, so, you know, we, we sort of ensure that we check against that. So it won't be unusual, just to give you an idea of some of the members. The, the big players are involved from the academic world, from the University of Cambridge, both universities, Anglia Ruskin University as well through to Adam Brooks. So when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about large-scale employers. Not necessarily are you going to just think about businesses. So AstraZeneca's a member, Arms a member, Marshall's a member. I mean, I could go through a number of them. Frontier's a member. Um, so you know, the organizations that we bring to the table are those that have a very long-term vested interest, as I said, in the uh, economy and the advancement of that economy. So the, the ecosystem here, in Cambridge, I mean, this building is a is a perfect example of that in microcosm, is incredibly rich, incredibly vibrant, incredibly active. Now, that's not to say, I, I'll, I'll say Norwich because I know it best, hasn't got that too. It's at a smaller scale. And I think that's fair. Given the size of it, given the richness of it, how do you go? I mean, you mentioned, you alluded to this earlier. How do you navigate that and sort of pick your targets almost well we're lucky because people within the organizations we operate know many other people across the whole of the economy in terms of the business community as i was saying when we opened our remarks this is a very networked um, organization a very networked city and on the basis of that um, we have many conversations with the membership committee that we set up that looks at the interest that has been shown towards cambridge ahead and we then look at the criteria of why we would consider taking that organization and the first thing is is we, we don't turn people away what we do is we have conversations with them it has to be a good fit you know I want to keep my churn rate of Cambridge ahead really low and in order to do that it means that right from the beginning when we're talking to organizations is having that very honest open conversation about how do we fit together what is it that we are going to do together that actually is going to further this um, this uh, this economy it isn't just a transactional relationship. And I think that has been why we've had longevity and why we've held on to our members. Um, but because of the connections, we get to know people very well. Um, and it's inevitably, I could go to a networking, um, a networking um, event and there we would meet people who we could then talk about Cambridge Ahead softly. I don't oversell. I hope I don't. Uh, <laughs> but I think people do take an interest in what we're doing because Cambridge wants to see Cambridge be successful and we're trying to help that agenda forward um, and that's all that we're interested in that communities in Cambridge are have the benefit of Cambridge into the future if you look backwards and you look at today you're never going to look at the future and for me it's about the future because that will take care of today yeah absolutely I made this point with George Freeman this was sort of on his he'd stopped being science minister when I interviewed him and he would go on to be science minister, then stop being science minister, then start being science minister again. And he's at the time of recording, he's still the science minister, long may that continue. But we, we, we had this discussion and the point I made to him was that, uh, and I'll, I'll ask you about this, Dan, um, and then, then ask Jane to, to reflect on it, that to, and I have heard it, and I heard it most recently this Saturday night, about, oh, well, you know, yes, it's all very well getting engaging with Cambridge, but we've got to bring it back to where, you know, um, elsewhere in the region and to me that's fundamentally wrong fundamentally wrong 
and I will not yield any ground to anyone on this podcast who says differently, because when Cambridge prospers, there is opportunity there for the rest of the region, for the rest of the country, for the rest of the planet, you know, but there's, for the rest of the region is my focus. So yes, there's opportunity for the rest of the region. As I said earlier, let Cambridge be Cambridge. The need is instead to understand its ecosystem. And you can't pretend that Cambridge is something other than it is, that it has a history other than the one it has. Um, because only then can you unlock opportunity. And what I really want to ask you to start with you, Dan, is what does the rest of the region need to understand when it comes to engaging with Cambridge? I would agree with your your point. I mean, a thriving Cambridge is good for the city region, it's good for the wider region, and it's good for the UK and the the country as a whole. I mean, the the pandemic is probably a really good example of the impact that what goes on in Cambridge can have for the health and benefit of populations across the world, both in terms of the vaccine rollout, uh, AstraZeneca clearly uh, playing a leading role in that across the whole world. Also, the amount of genomic sequencing that's going on in Cambridge on behalf of the global population, really powerful, clear example in our recent past of the benefit, the wider benefit of a thriving Cambridge to others. In terms of the, the region, the, the east of England and the other regions that Cambridge sits um, within, there are even more benefits to be gained by fostering and forging those connections. So for example, better connectivity, sustainable public transport connectivity between Cambridge, other cities and towns around the region leads to more economic opportunities for people living in those places, more economic opportunities for those places themselves as businesses that flow off the back of what happens in Cambridge can grow in the surrounding areas. And there, there really is a positive symbiotic relationship there. Uh, there is not a competition, a, there's a mutual benefit to a growing Cambridge. And Cambridge itself clearly um, is experiencing high levels of demand for commercial space for people to yes. live here yep. for people to, for people to work so there's a there's a need an active need to spread what is happening in the city across a wider region and the more we do that the more the region benefits well, we'll come on to that but Jane do you just reflect on on, on that and, and Dan's answer because I'm, I'm particularly interested in Cambridge South when that opens well firstly I mean, Dan summarised this very well. I think more connection is absolutely the key to unlocking growth across the East as well as also other parts of the country. But actually, just let's start under the lens of the national picture. Cambridge is a, not, is a, a net contributor to the Exchequer. And in that, it already shows that it delivers where there probably needs to be further contributions to cities or, or regions that aren't doing quite so well as Cambridge. That's on a national level. On a much more localised level, what's thought up and considered in Cambridge, because we are a thought leadership type of, um, well, the types of industries that we operate in. And we like to think that if it's researched in Cambridge, developed in Cambridge, manufactured elsewhere, that is great for national growth. And that helps the levelling up agenda. And that is why Cambridge is so important to the national economy as well as also the global economy for those reasons. So you talk about one area um, and looking at Cambridge South. Absolutely. If we were to unlock that, we unlock more growth around life sciences. We unlock growth in other sectors because of that particular line. And just to give some stats that I was reading recently, um, in terms of the actual... 
commercial space in terms of looking at lab space, we have unfulfilled demand of 1.2 million square footage, which is not going to be even covered by the square footage of uh, commercial space that's coming up in lab space. And that gives you an indication that people want to be part of this ecosystem, and they're not going to go away. And that for sustainability reasons in this city, we need to ensure that we fulfill that demand. And we can only do that by ensuring that the commercial spaces that we offer absolutely meet the demand of those organizations and sectors that want to come in to Cambridge. And I'm going to steal one of the things that was said by Matthew Bullock, um, who was um, a chair of our growth uh, group, when he said, Cambridge is a bit like a bonfire in terms of its clusters. You cannot just pick them up and put them elsewhere. Mm. And from that perspective, when you think about it under those terms, people want to fire up in Cambridge. And that is going to continue. And it's important that for national government, and it's important for regional government, who definitely know this, that actually if we do more in Cambridge, that's good for the east, and it's yeah. good for the west. And when we look at Cambridge, we look west because we're very keen on the arc and east-west rail and the opportunities of that, which is all looking very positive, because that helps the east too into the long term. So just because we may focus towards, at the moment, looking at the arc, doesn't mean that we haven't got one eye also on the east and how we can make sure that there are opportunities from Cambridge through from Oxford also f end up further down the line in Norwich um, and other parts. I don't want to be unfair to any other parts, by the way. So. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure um, uh, the people of Ipswich will, uh, will, will, will want to, to, to stay. But uh, I, I want to come on to the new era for the Cambridge economy in a second. But just, just, just to follow up, follow up on that, and absolutely you, you raise uh, the Oxcam arc. And again, anyone in, I challenge anyone in the, re in the rest of the east of England who's looking at that thinking, that's nothing to do with us. Well, you're dead wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Of course it's something to do with us because it unlocks opportunity and that's that that's kind of the watchword here and you you, you I'll, I'll come on we'll come on to uh, to sort of lab space and the challenges there in a moment or two he said fiddling with his 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 uh, pieces of paper which is always a, a risk during a recording so the new era for the cambridge economy is, is really a landmark report uh, that cambridge ahead have uh, have have put out i mean i don't know if you want to quickly credit anyone anyone uh, with the help in producing the report Oh, there are many people. In fact, there are four dames on there. None of them, have, and I'm going to use the silly old joke, but then none of them have been in theatre. So the, the, the dames happen to be Dame Kate Barker, Dame Julia King, um, Dame Fiona Reynolds, and Dame Carol Black as examples of what we have on our committee. And I think that um, huge credit to the committee themselves that have been involved in the, in the steering committee that we created. And it's that sort of calibre of people that we brought on board. Um, this was a really important, if I may just go back to why we did Nice. What was Nice all about? So when the pandemic hit, and of course we all sent ourselves home because we're in knowledge intensive sectors and can work from home. And I have to say that only some part of the population can, let, can work from home, others can't. That said, can you still hear me, Mike? Yeah, yeah. Is that still? Yeah. I'm, too, I'm too interested in what you say, to be honest. I'm just like, oh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. Because no, 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 you said I was very silent before, so I don't know if I'm... I'm no, it's okay. There's a, there's a green light that flashes on here when, when people speak, so I'm not okay. sure. And it was, it was, it was not, not flashing, so I was like... 
Is oh. that flashing? But yes, it's now flashing. So, so I'm going to take my headphones off because it's it's much much more fun to just listen and be part yeah. of the conversation than study everything intently. So so going back to when the pandemic hit and you know a number of us were sitting at home and looking and observing at what's happening to the economy. It wasn't just about the immediate need that we were interested in during the pandemic and making sure that uh, you know those that have been furloughed and other things you know that that inevitably were hitting a lot of people hard. We were beginning to look at what does what do pandemics do to future economics um and we started to do some investigation because it seemed to us that in conversation if you're starting to see that people's behavior could potentially change um into the long term because technological advancements have gone much further than they ever have before are we beginning to see a seismic change in the way that people view the way they work and where they want to work and whether that demand's going to change um, and through that I won't go through great detail of how we came to conclusions that yes we need to to report on it but inevitably we felt that it was important to ask you know, a bunch of really intelligent people in the world of, you know, econ economists themselves and ask them what they thought about actually doing an investigation about future economics based on what the pandemic had created, which is this level of behavioral change and basically stemming from, from um, the workplace. And we felt that that was important to actually take further. And the reason behind that was if you just take the very um, early signs of what does it mean when you stay at home, and if a bunch of people stay at home, a number of people stay at home, half a population of the workforce stay at home, you're starting to see what happens to roads, what happens to um, transport, what happens to public or private transport, what happens to where people potentially think about where they want to live, what happens to office space, what happens to how we interact with each other. Is this going to actually advance the economy in terms of productivity, or are we actually going to see this going backwards? And these were questions we were asking during a pandemic. Yeah. And so we felt that it was important to start reporting on this. And this is where Nice was born. It's a new era for the Cambridge economy. That's what it stands for. But actually, you could say it's a new era for the city economy. It could be any city across the world. Yes. Because we, we're not that selfish that we think the pandemic only hit Cambridge. Um, we do think a little bit further afield. Um, so we thought it would be important to, to do something that used Cambridge as a, um, a testbed to what actually do we mean by future economics based on um, the way economies could function when you see this behavioral change moving to such an extent. And the report itself began to look into that. And there were some major things that we started to investigate. How do we network if people are all sitting at home? Not that, you know, we took it to the extreme. How do we ensure that um, we build the right sort of transport systems uh, for the future if people are actually demanding a different way of working or want, let's, let's face it, more flexibility? Um, and a number of other things, people living, as I said, where, where they want to live, etc. Now we, we come out of the other side of the pandemic, and what are we seeing? Well, that's the truth behind it, is yes, people are demanding different things from their employers, how they want to work, where they want to work, where they want to live, how they want to travel, and inevitably that's going to have an impact on the way that the economy functions for its future. And so it's, it's a question of ensuring that we don't sleepwalk ourselves into a future, that we understand the sort of types of systems we need to put in place, 
these could be transport systems or otherwise, that are actually going to help us flourish with this new era of demand. And that's what this, this particular project's doing. It's in its first phase of which we provoked that thinking. That's what report one did. And we hope to do a second phase, which will start to look at movement and access. Yeah. Because at the absolute crux of this is you can't move and you don't have access. You're not going to have a job and you're not going to know, or you may not be have a job now, but actually it's about finding ways to ensure that we lift people out of poverty and we give them opportunities by having access. And movement and access, when you couple them together, actually helps us understand people's behavior. And by understanding people's behavior, we can start to think about what sort of systems we put in place that actually uh, meets the demands of people, but also helps influence them in the right sort of way. Dan, um, what parts of Nice are, uh, you know, it's early days and Jane alluded to a follow-up on that, but what parts are within the gift of people here in the city? Because I'm, I'm quite, I'll give you an example, just a brief example of what I mean. Uh, when I was doing the train event and, and I was being interviewed by the BBC and they sort of came around I uh, was going to try to bat away the negative questions and do MPs need to do more? What about Westminster? I was like, well, what we're focusing on is what's in our hands? What's in, what's in our hands to change before we have to go knocking on a Whitehall door? So what is emerging from Nice in the hands of Cambridge to change for itself and, 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 and wider afield? Because obviously, as you said, Jane, um, there's a lot coming from that that's applicable more broadly. So there's a lot that is within the gift of our local area to get on and work towards that will improve the quality of life for uh, local people in the way that the Nice report has described. So for example, uh, we understand that one of the uh, key factors in quality of life is people's access to nature and green space and places like that. And as the Cambridge population has grown, some people have that sort of access, but some people in our city region don't. So there are great initiatives like the Cambridge Nature Network, which Cambridge Ahead has been one of the key partners involved in designing and developing and is now um, being implemented that will make more green, biodiverse, rich space accessible to more people. And that project is now winning national government funding to help being implemented, but it's locally led and locally driven. Another key area of the NICE report, which Jane referenced, is around movement, mobility, access, um, and making sure that our recovery from the pandemic is not a car-led recovery, because that's not sustainable into the long term for a variety of reasons. Not least, we are in a, in a city that doesn't have enough space yeah. to, to mean that everyone can drive around and we won't be congested. And we know from our research into quality of life that actually congestion, being caught up in congestion, um, inadequate public transport systems is a real drag on people's quality of life in Cambridge. That's a particular dynamic of our city region. And so there's a lot within the, uh, the gift of us locally to improve transport and connectivity in the city region. And then a little bit more broadly and looking into the, into the long term, the way in which we design spaces as new spaces are developed and come yeah. forward in our city. One of the things the Nice report looked at a lot and talked about was what are the uh, most innovative, progressive um, ways of thinking about urban design that we could be thinking about in Cambridge. So, for example, Paris has been trialling a 15-minute city yes. concept. Yeah. And this is 
the idea that people should have access to key amenities in their day-to-day -day life, should have social connectivities and bonds within 15 minutes of their of their front door. And so that's thinking that we think is particularly important as Cambridge, is that there's a bit of this tipping point where it's moved from being, in large part, a sort of a hub and spoke city with the historical central core and suburbs yeah. into a more polycentric city where other centres are emerging. So as they emerge, urban villages. urban villages, can they be designed and developed with that 15 minute city thinking? And can that be done in a way that's perhaps more inclusive than has been done in the past? So people from all parts of communities feel welcome, whether they're on uh, a public green or they might be on a science park or campus, that sort of porous, inclusive design is a really important principle that's within our gift locally to take forward. One really good example of what you were saying earlier, Jane, about the changing nature of work and the changing nature of the workplace, I think I was really lucky enough to record um, at an event at the new Roku building on the science park and i don't know if you visited it yet the top floor is incredible it's like a you know it, it's it's sort of I, when i first went in there i basically thought it was it was a a, a deluxe brand premier in because of the, pur the purples everywhere and uh, tim granger was saying oh i'm really glad you picked up on it it's really important for us and it's a it's a really inclusive and, and a, a lovely space are we likely to see cambridge continuing uh, this trend in a kind of laid back relaxed office space that's more about making work a really nice place to go rather than just a place you have to be from nine to five before they let you go again. Well, I think it's actually interesting how you ended that, you know, sort of nine to five places that, you know, you can just leave, you wishing yourself away from the office. I think people are, are, I wouldn't say desperate to attract their employees back, but certainly see the value in having people back in, in the office. I think flexibility is here to stay, by the way. I think that inevitably that demand will be there. But I think because of the flexibility, people are beginning to blur between what is their leisure time and their work time. And that is the trend that's going forward. You see this here at WeWork, um, people playing ping pong downstairs they to, do. yeah, they certainly do. Yes, there's a tournament going on at the moment. Um, but at the same time, they're working. So their downtime is to pick up, uh, you know, a ping pong bat and, you know, have a go at a, a, a game with somebody else and then, then carry on working. Or sit on the sofa and have a chat with somebody or listen to music at the same time working. Yeah. Now, you know, it's that environment which actually lifts the spirit. It actually makes people feel more productive. It makes people feel they want to be here. It makes you feel like your sofa from home is back in your office. And somehow that makes sense and somehow that seems to make people feel happier and I think when you think about all of this and you think about it in terms of actually what do people want from their workspace and what do they want from their personal lives because they want so much more flexibility as I said that blurring is coming into place so I think when you're thinking about commercial spaces and organizations thinking about attracting people back. It's, you know, how often do we just see a desk in an office with a chair? We don't see that as much. People come into WeWork and they're actually quite surprised at how relaxed this is. But this, I think, is absolutely the future. And I think new buildings that are coming in, as you say, you know, purple buildings, you know, with, with rich mixes of things that perhaps look like there should be restaurants at the top. One day will be restaurants at the top. This blurring, this porousness between um, what we do as, 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 you know, citizens living in a city to what we do 
as workers in a city is, is going to merge so much. And there's so much more of that demand. And it's very much more attractive. The more that you make something more attractive to somebody, the harder they work, funnily enough. It isn't something like in the days when I was managing in very early days, you looked at the clock and wondered why someone was late by five seconds and worried about that, yeah. when it just seems the most ridiculous thing now in today's world. So, um, yeah, I think this is here to stay. I think it's very encouraging. I think young people like it, and they are of the future, and it's really important that we embrace it. I think so too. And, Dan, I'm intrigued by the reference in the report to anti-fragility. Um, which how exposure to shocks actually strengthens. And I mean, I know you, you're nodding. I know you know this. I'm just, um, uh, it's just beyond, it's a sort of step beyond being resilient. It's actually allowing these shocks to strengthen uh, and, uh, you know, firm up your response to future shocks. And how do you see Cambridge, uh, A, how do you see Cambridge adapting to becoming anti-fragile? Um, and what lessons are there for the rest of the, the region? in that sort of process of becoming anti-fragile? So the anti-fragile concept is, is about something that's more proactive uh, than just being resilient as a city. And our exploration of that through the Nice project um, really went back to some of the core ingredients of what has made Cambridge successful over recent decades. So that presence of strong networks, um, the connections that people have across the city has been a sort of fuel of Cambridge's success so far, but we think is also something that's a really important ingredient for an anti-fragile city that responds positively to shocks and grows. So actually within the Nice project itself, we found uh, undertaking that project was an example of that in practice. So through the project, we were putting on virtual workshops with uh, employers and representatives across the economy to understand what was going on in the workplace. So as people were responding to lockdowns and easing of lockdowns and then lockdowns, and were very quickly having to introduce really quite new working practices, their ability to talk to other people doing that thing, going through that same process, they found incredibly valuable. Yeah. So actually, the workshops we were putting on as part of the Nice project were an example of that anti-fragility in action. I think they were people finding networks, finding connections that could help them adapt more quickly, learn from others' mistakes rather than having to make those mistakes themselves. And that um, really uh, helped solidify that idea for us. Um, actually, just this morning, I've come from a meeting of our young advisory committee. So this is something yes. for people aged 35 and under who work in Cambridge Head member organisations. It's their own network and their own platform to talk about many of the um, uh, issues surrounding the city that we've been talking about. And that group use each other to understand how they can develop themselves, how they can um, carry on the work that they're doing um, in their workplaces, uh, how they are as a peer group responding to new working practices, how the return to office is hitting them and all of those sorts of things. So this anti-fragility concept is based on many, many things across different parts of the system. It's not all about the corporate side of the city and the workplace, but there are some really good examples within that part of it on what anti-fragility mean and people being able to work with each other to adapt quickly to changing circumstances, learn from each other's mistakes and support each other through change is a core principle of that concept. 
it really is a fascinating concept of the sort of, uh, and, and, and you put it really well in that the, the actual process of examining it, yeah. it makes it happen almost. Um, just to move on, um, I'm just going to read you both um, this from a, a UKRI report. Uh, the UK's research and innovation infrastructure, opportunities to grow our capability. Uh, many challenges can only be addressed by bringing together unique combinations of partners and expertise from across academia, business, government and nations. Our aim is to build a more connected landscape and enhance our capability through partnership working at all scales. Parts of the landscape are well connected, but this connectivity is not consistent. And so there is scope to more fully exploit our collective potential. Success requires proactive research, innovation community able and ready to take any opportunities available. Now, that sounds to me a lot like the East of England, but then uh, I would say that, wouldn't I? But Jane, can I just get you to reflect on that briefly? Uh, well, briefly, uh, get you to reflect on that and, uh, and then I'll ask Dan for his thoughts. So, so the question being what, Mike? What do you well, want? I mean, yeah, what, what does that, that sort of the UK research and innovation uh, is, is calling... Um, for new, uh, to my mind, it's calling for new clusters, new collaborations, and to make those collaborations that exist more consistent. Success requires a proactive research and innovation community able and ready to take any opportunities available. And I just wondered what that, that you know, the, the call from UKR, it's a fairly recent report, unfortunately I didn't put the date on my notes, which was a foolish mistake. Um, more connected, it's calling for a more connected landscape, enhanced capability through partnership working at all scales. Now, this is an area where it seems instinctively seems to me Cambridge itself has no great problems, but whether that is something that we can work on better as as an east as the eastern region and what your thoughts were on on doing this. Okay, so I think you know throughout this conversation that we've had today, what we've actually recognised about Cambridge is that the way that it operates is very much about partnership working, and you know it's not scared to innovate. Um, it, I think you know to steal another um, saying by somebody who said, uh, of course, somebody who said um, that. Cambridge is um, a low-risk place to do high-risk things. Yes. You know, and I'm, I'm trying to desperately think about who, who said it, but I'm not taking credit for it. But it's a, it's a wonderful way of looking at the way that Cambridge thinks about itself. And I think there's a lot of things within that. One is actually being... being um, able to and confident to take risks is really important. Two is to partnership work. You can't do it on your own. It's absolutely imperative that you work across your communities because it's it's not just business doing business on its own. Business will have to work with the civil community as well as also um, other parts of um, other communities, residential or otherwise, in order to be able to do things more perfectly. And it's innovation comes from really considering how what we do lands with people. It's not just the audience that we're trying to target. It's actually more to do with how it impacts across various communities. And I think it's about ensuring that when you're thinking about this, that you have a real, what we would call, and we use it a lot, a systems approach to things. Where does this impact? How does it impact? How does it influence? And how does it better? And who's then therefore involved for many various reasons, not because people are going to be directly involved in whatever the initiative is, but actually it may impact them in some way. And I think Cambridge actually really does, is really 
good at thinking that through. I'm not entirely sure. I'm, I'm not as close to um, other cities across the region and in terms of how they do this, but that's how we do things here. And that's more about does that lend itself well to the way that other parts of the region could think about itself and the way it thinks about not only what it's doing, but who perhaps in the region it should be calling upon in order to work alongside that's actually going to help advance whatever that particular initiative or consideration might be. Well, uh, actually, Dan, I'll, get, I'll, re I'll read this quote to you, actually, which was um, from William Rook of Carter Jonas, just across the road here, who uh, we took part in our business panel when we did our uh, the roundtable on the train, which is um, uh, about a month and a half ago now. But he, he I, I, I checked back, and this is exactly what he said. Uh, if you live in Cambridge and you work in Cambridge, you sometimes see Norwich as being a bit at the end of the road. And I think that's the wrong perception. So you've got a walled insular city view from Norwich looking back, and then we're looking up going, well, that's the end of the road, but that's the wrong way to look at it. There's a lot going on between Cambridge and Norwich, and Ipswich, I, I'm sure he meant to say, and a lot of crossover between the two cities, and it really feels like there's a lot of untapped potential of that. Now, before I actually reflect on that, the, the other thing I find is quite funny is, I think... And a lot of people agreed with this point on the train that there is a confidence problem coming from Norwich and Ipswich in that some people, it has been said to me, the Sea Cambridge's, the ecosystem here being aloof, which I think is, again, I think is, I'm bound to say I think is wrong. And I think the issue is we're not engaging with sufficient confidence to actually make make land the proposition and make it stick. And I hope that's where I can, I can come in. But... Dan, what are your thoughts on... on <laughs> rant over, Dan, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I, I think the mindset thing is particularly important. The, the Something that Cambridge has really benefited from is quite an open mindset, I would say, in terms of people from different sectors, different industries, bits, different bits of academia, willing to just engage randomly with each other because probably something good and beneficial is going to come out of that. And that's, um, I think that's quite a particular characteristic of the Cambridge mindset. And then there is no reason that that shouldn't apply between and across cities as well. So there is clearly a fantastic world-leading research innovation going on in Norwich and other places like Ipswich. And that um, sharing, collaborating, because it was it's in our mutual gain and benefit to do so, um, I'm sure, uh, and does go on and does exist, but there there could probably be um, a uh, there, there might be a sort of a mindset thing to overcome a little bit in the way you describe it that actually there is no need to be um, competitive between places. There's no need to, uh, there may be perceptions of um, different cities having different kind of like uh, physical or, or otherwise walls, but actually kind of once you get to know places and you know, once I got to know Cambridge, it is a very open city where people really want to kind of help you to be successful. And actually that, that mindset is something that can translate um, across, across regions and further than that. And it's been something that's fueled the local success, and I, 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 you know, I see places where it does exist. You know, the Norwich-Cambridge connections and things like agritech and yeah. and plant science are really, really strong. So, 
So more of that, kind of prevailing that across different types of sectors and different cities and towns in the region, I think can only be beneficial. And I'm sure there are lots of parts of the Cambridge community that are really keen and willing to do so. If they're oh, there not are, yeah. I can, you know, I can attest to that because I say the one, as I say, William Rook put it really well that, you know, it's it, it, and as I said at the wrap up to the event, um, it's a bit like a debutante ball, if you like. And Cambridge has got a very nice full dance card. And they're sort of looking. Does those those, gen, those people, gentlemen in the corner want to dance? And there's Norwich Nip and, and Suffolk, Norwich and Ipswich, North and Suffolk, to, going. Oh, I'm a bit shy. I'm a bit shy. I don't want to go and talk to that really impressive looking, you know. And um, and I think that's 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 a pity. But one thing the train event that we held did show is that there is a real appetite to get in there and engage. And I think we 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 can't let that reticence hold us back because there's so much for everyone to benefit from. John Innes Centre, Norwich Research Park, as you say, fantastic science going on there. Ros Bird is, is, is now in post as the CEO of, of the company that runs the research park, has got fantastic experience at Granter Park um, and a fantastic uh, number of contacts in Cambridge. So she knows how to, to, to make those, those connections work. Um, just to move on briefly before we start with some edging towards the end of the interview. There's, what is it about? I'm just intrigued about the sort of the delivery robots, uh, these little sort of white, white uh, bo rounded boxes on wheels uh, zipping out around Cambridge delivering food. Uh, you've got, you've uh, trialled here autonomous buses um, and autonomous vehicles. There's lots of experimentation. And I just wondered where that willingness to try the unconventional comes from. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, uh, yeah. Well, they, they, it's quite an unusual um, uh, experience to get used to when you're st stood at traffic lights next to a delivery robot that is kind of navigating the traffic lights uh, and crossing the road in a really impressive way. So it, that is a great example of a city that's continually um, sort of experimenting and thinking of itself as a place that's going to trial things. Uh, I, I would say that there, there's probably a coming together of people who are um, researching these cutting-edge technologies being in this city, having quite a close connection to city as a theme that we've been talking about is people who are doing great things in Cambridge care a lot about Cambridge and I think they naturally would want then this city to be a place that is uh, somewhere those things are being trialled. Um, we benefit from having um, institutions like the University of Cambridge who not only are places where research is happening but are also responsible for significant parts of the city so yes. one of the autonomous trials that you were talking about earlier autonomous buses happened on the West Cambridge site which is a university campus and so there's a space there which is being which uh, um, um, being developed and maintained by a particular institution that's got a mindset to want to innovate uh, and I think the other thing that I would say is a really important part of all of this is that we have a civic community. So we have local government, local authorities 
who want to work really closely with academia and with industry. And when you get that, that's when you can do some of these really cool things because then you can collectively uh, come up with ideas, want to trial something, and then you have the levers of decision making in order to make them happen. So again, that autonomous bus trial is a great example because it also involved our local authorities through the Smart Cambridge program in putting on that trial. So there's a few, probably a few different ingredients or components that come together to make that the case in Cambridge. Um, and of course, it's not particularly a new thing. Probably Cambridge has been experimenting and innovating for many, many, many years now. I think when I, when I toured Idea Space with Ben Hartley, uh, what struck me was the kind of the huge variety of um, people who he had under his roof. You'd got uh, a guy who was doing coaching through drama. Uh, helping, basically training people to give bad news was one example. Anthony Quinn um, was his name. And then we had another working in blockchain security. You had the TV presenter Maddy Moat at another desk, whom I am bad to say. I'm ashamed to say I was too, too shy and embarrassed to interview, which is not a good look. But, you know, there's, 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 there's a huge range of, of, of people uh, in Cambridge looking out to the world. And if I come across as a bit of a Cambridge fanboy, it's simply because I can see the advantages in that really close engagement you don't get engagement by sitting and waiting for someone to phone you or email you. You actually do it by grabbing, you know, the, the situation by the scruff of the neck and getting in there and, and seeing what you can do uh, and not always being about how can my place benefit, but how can everybody benefit? And I'm preaching again. Um, but I just on that one point, actually, I was just going to say that we also, you know, because of the innovation that we do, you've got massive researchers who've turned up here. If you look at Amazon as one organization, yeah. Microsoft here, is a, you know, these are the headquarters for research for a reason. And it's because of all the stuff that has, you know, that sort of basically is bubbled out of the ground, which is research through Cambridge and its innovation um, system that has made that happen, which is really, you know, not to forget that actually we are lucky that we've got organizations organizations like that actually who who've chosen to have Cambridge as their home. Tomorrow I'll be back in Cambridge interviewing Daniel Zeichner MP and I'll be interviewing your chair Harriet Fear in the new year. What what should I be asking them? Especially Daniel. I think from my side, um, it'd be interesting for you to, to, to ask Daniel a little more about where um, he sees transport going for the future. Uh, he at one stage was a shadow transport minister. What his views are around transport systems. Um, ask him what he thought about Nice. Um, get his perspective as an outsider. And I, I, would, I say that quite seriously because he's the one who brought it to a parliamentary debate. Yeah. Uh, lots of really good, good points were made there. He actually, ah, you, you bring me back to, a, he actually during the debate called for a proper regional policy. So Dan, uh, just quickly, what would, do you think a proper regional policy looks like for your members? So there's a lot that um, could usefully be considered under a regional policy. I think the, the, the main benefit of looking at things through that lens is there's there is a natural gap between the local, so what a local authority is responsible for, and the national in terms of central government. 
and the reality of the world that we all operate in is, is, is probably a little bit in between. You know, so the, if we think about the Cambridge economy, people come to work in Cambridge from a footprint that is much bigger than Cambridge City Council or any of our surrounding local authorities. And so the functional economic area of Cambridge, as an example, operates across quite a regional footprint. So it must make sense then that you think about how you could best support a Cambridge economy in a regional sort of sense. And some mechanism could help you think about, OK, so what are the transport needs of this region that is operating in that economic fashion? Uh, what are the natural resource needs of that region? What are the housing needs across that region? And so I would really agree with Daniel's point that there's not a regional lens in terms of um, decision making about sustainable and inclusive economic growth. And that is a gap in our system at the minute. There have been useful um, indications through things like the Oxcam arc of that being brought forward and actually a regional plan for the arc could be an exemplar of exactly the sort of thing. How do you make the best of the possibility within the region that includes Cambridge, Oxford and Milton Keynes and how do you plan for that under some kind of regional banner? Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for your time today. It's been a really fascinating interview that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. So I, I am truly grateful for your, for your time today. I just want to end with just very, very one quick question. Your favourite place in the city? Jane, I'll start with you. My favourite place um, would have to be actually probably any one of the colleges and going through them simply because um, it is, you know, uh, an area, all of them have great beauty in terms of what actually the architecture of these, these um, colleges have to offer, um, the grounds, but most of all the history. And I think from that perspective, we mustn't forget that there's 800 years steeped of history that's actually been innovating since then. And this is actually all born out of these sort of places. So um, for me, they are really important, obviously, to the city. Favourite place in the city, uh, Abbey Stadium, the football club. Right. And then not, too, not too far away, the pubs on Mill Road. There you go. Well, two, two, two very, well, three very good recommendations. Very different. But uh, Jane Patterson Todd, Dan Thorpe of Cambridge Ahead, thank you very much. Thank you to Jane and Dan for their warm welcome and for hosting our interview at WeWork at Station Road in Cambridge. And now, food, glorious food. After decades of supermarket, restaurant and fast food dominance, food on the street is fashionable once again. And we're not talking about the late night, post nightclub burger that no sober person would entertain. Oh no. We're talking about the finest fare the world has to offer. But what's your favorite food on the street? Sounds like another job for... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. Now, I'm not sure this is the kind of street food I initially had in mind, but Dr Garrick Fincham, Associate Director of Planning at the University of East Anglia and indie author, has had his own traumatic experiences. 
I can only reply to this, says Garrick, with a comment made by one of my daughters. Someone had dropped a pizza on the pavement in Norwich and I almost trod on it. Saved. Only by my daughter, shouting at the top of her voice, mind you, Watch out, Dad! It's street food! Ew! We welcome to Crowd Sorcery Catherine Gray, specialist occupational therapist and CEO of Cup OT, wellness and therapy services. Catherine tells us her go-to place is Norwich Market. So many amazing independent street food outlets. From the bodega sandwiches to fresh Norwich, bun box, Caribbean food, etc. Just brilliant. And Catherine's pop-up favourites? Cushy Kitchen, Anma's Kitchen and Chip Bucket. Brackets, bucket list. There's non-poke bowls as well, but I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Agreeing is Simon Blackwell, founder of Hemp Innovations, who says, I love Cushy Street Food, and you can find out more at cushystreetfood.co.uk. Thanks for prompting me to take a look, Simon and Catherine. It looks delicious. Saul Humphrey, managing partner at Saul Humphrey LLP, professor at Anglia Ruskin University, chair at Institute of Directors Norfolk, chair of New Anglia Leps Building Growth Group, and non-executive director interjects a very important point. I have lots of favourites, says Saul, but following an inspiring evening with Claire Cullens of Norfolk Community Foundation, I want to give a shout out to all the brilliant, nourishing Norfolk hubs, all of whom provide healthy, affordable food for those who are struggling to afford it and offers them support to discover pathways out of food poverty for good. Absolutely, Saul. Could not agree more. And you can find out more at NorfolkFoundation.com. Neil Griffin, meanwhile, innovation director, business coach and 2am problem solver. Presumably, where do you get good street food at 2am? Well, Neil says the best street food is the international street food market each Thursday at the University of Essex in Colchester. You can take your pick from a variety of awesome cuisine. Concurring with this is Georgina Watts, Centre Manager at the Innovation Centre, Colchester, who says, I was going to say the same, amazing street food. I can't promise that any of it is available at 2am, though. And finally, I apologise to marketing mage Laura Quelch, who says, Cheeky of you to post this around dinner time. I'm really hungry now. Sorry, Laura, but come to think of it, so am I. Thanks to all my crowd sorcerers. I really do enjoy setting you these little challenges. And next time, cue the pirate music and activate buccaneer mode. Arr! Where be the greatest, glitteriest hidden treasure in the east of England, me hearties? Sail your schooner to LinkedIn and find my challenge under hashtag crowd sorcery. Deactivate Buccaneer Mode. Ooh, phew, that's better. I better give Banham Zoo their parrot bag. Next week, we're keeping with the zoological theme and going on a visit to Fielding Cottage at Honningham, home of the goat shed. We'll meet entrepreneur Sam Steggles, tour the cheese-making plant, and find out about the incredible enterprise he built, not only in the teeth of a pandemic, but also from the other side of the planet. And speaking of things that could be potentially out of this world, we'll be catching up 
with Agritech E with the highlights of their Agritech Meet Space Tech event. Join me then. In closing, thank you again to Jane Patterson Todd and Dan Thorpe of Cambridge Ahead. And to Engineer 49. Now, little known fact, he is a fantastic opera singer. Yeah. As an engineer, obviously, he was drawn to Benjamin Britten's Turn of the Screw. No, no, wait, wait. In fact, in 2013, Petrock Trelawney of BBC Radio 3 described Engineer 49's performance as sound as a pound. Ten performances later, he became a tenor. What? 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 It could have been Carmend. <clears throat> Thank you for listening, and I truly hope you've enjoyed it. Get in touch with me at mike at easternpromise.site. That's mike at easternpromise.site. That's S-I-T-E as in website. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.